Welcome to Turn the Page, the official podcast of the Syosset Public Library. Welcome to another episode of Turn the Page. I'm Jen. I'm your co-host today, and I am so excited to be here with you and with our author for this episode. Could I please ask you to introduce yourself and your book, please? Sure. Uh, my name is Tim McGregor. I'm a Toronto-based author, uh, mostly horror. Um, and I have, I have a new book coming out next month called Wasps in the Ice Cream, which is a coming-of-age small-town horror story. Awesome. I really, really loved this book. Um, Thank you. You're welcome. You're so you're so welcome. It was um, really a pleasure to read, um, you know, even as it was like, you know, horror. And (laughs) but I before we get into the book itself, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about, um, you know, what drew you to horror? Were there like foundational texts or films that drew you to the genre? And um, like, how is writing in that genre as opposed to like other maybe genres and avenues you've worked in. Right. Um, you know, I don't remember what, how I, how I got into horror. I, I think it happened very young, probably with like comic books or, you know, watching something as simple as Scooby-Doo on TV. I was just, I've always been drawn to like monsters. Um, and that just kind of carried with me through, through my life. I just always read horror. you know, I read other things too, of course, but, uh, yeah, the horror has just always been a constant in my life. Um, and I, I don't know. I do remember I came from a very Catholic family uh, where like I, I had an aunt who was a nun and stuff. And I remember a couple of times when I was younger, a few of them taking me aside saying, why are you interested in this stuff? I guess they were worried about me, like, you know, typical stuff. Um, but yeah, I, I can't explain it. It's just, uh, just kind of drawn to the dark side, like so many people are, but um, yeah. And I, um, I've written in other genres, like, uh, I've read a few thrillers and stuff like that. Um, but horror is just, even when I try to write something that's not horror, some element will always creep in. There'll always be a ghost or someone's in a graveyard. So I just, I just na- naturally go there. So that's really great to me. And I really love that, you know, horror can kind of be like, not just a genre, but like a mode that you write in kind of, you know, that you could bring right. to other genres even. That's like a cool way to think about it. Um, And I love that you brought up monsters because this book, I think, does have so much uh, to say about monsters. Mm -hmm. Maybe not like, you know, literal monsters like, you know, Grendel or (laughs) like Freddy Krueger, but about like the way that we make monsters of each other in society and how that affects, you know, people. So could you talk a little bit about, um, you know, what made you choose uh, the 80s? And uh, especially like the atmosphere of the satanic panic, you know, and this sort of like looming uh, nuclear threat. Like what uh, what like drew you to that setting to talk about and society and stuff like that? You know, um, the thing was, I I first had the idea of somebody being attracted to like the weird family in town. And I decided to just I'd said it in the 80s because that's when I was a teenager. So I just knew that era. I thought it would give it a little more veracity or I could pull from my own life, which I ended up doing. Mm. Um, and just, you know, thinking about when I was writing it, thinking about what it was like to grow up in those times. I remember the satanic panic 
Uh, and sort of scratching my head going, is this for real? Like, it seemed unbelievable at the time, but nobody seemed to be questioning it. You know, Geraldo's, Rivera's investigating it. It's all over the news. And there were such outlandish claims. Um, and parents were getting uptight about anything satanic related, you know, heavy metal music, whatever. Mm. Uh, and I do remember the looming threat of nuclear war. Um, just the helplessness of it like if, if it was going to happen there was nothing you could do um and there, there is there's a part in the book where george the the weird sister talks about her aunt who wants to who has built a bomb shelter um i grew up in northern ontario we were fairly remote and i had an aunt who was convinced it was going to happen and she wanted the entire family to pull their money and build a bomb shelter out where we were thinking we would be safe because we were near we were in northern ontario um, the funny thing is that actually wouldn't have worked because the secondary NORAD unit for Canada was close to where we were. So it would have been, a, it would have been one of the targets. So we wouldn't have survived anyway. <laughs> but I just remember that, that looming fear, uh, and the helplessness of it. Like there's nothing you could do. Somebody, the missiles could be flying as we speak, you know, and we'd be sitting there listening to, uh, Nina Hagen's 99 left balloons, which was her song about, uh, nuclear war <laughs> gosh yeah that's so interesting and it really you know the fact that you deal with a lot of that context I think gives a lot of um nuance to like what could otherwise be read as like you know rebellious teen right. behavior like teen cruelty teen meanness you know like right. it once you really consider like the atmosphere that these kids were growing up in like it totally makes sense that they would act be acting out and having like dismal thoughts about the world and their placement, you know, and like, that's a very relatable uh, mindset, I think. Sure. Like adolescence is a tough time uh, just on its own. You throw in it. And I don't mean to be one of those older guys who's saying, Oh, when I was young, I had it so rough, you know, uh, because kids today have a totally different set of pressures on them. Um, But, you know, existential dread doesn't help. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, when you're trying to figure out yourself or like Mark, the main character in the book, you slowly come to the realization that his friends aren't very nice people and they don't really have anything in common anymore, but they've been friends since they were 12. So he just kind of goes along with it mm-hmm. until it, you know, it kind of bites him in the ass. But. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that is, I think, very telling too, because let's see, how do I put it? Um, you know, teen the teen phase is so hard as you say and the fact that like you are struggling so much against like (sighs) yourself and the way that your body is changing and like people not understanding you and then to be struggling with all that with the knowledge that like it might just all end someday because like one day somebody might press the nuclear button is like yeah like nihilism kind of makes sense like when that is (laughs) like what you're going through um could you talk a little bit about um the the friend dynamics too because I was very interested in um that aspect of it because a lot of times when people write stories about childhood especially in the past like it's very nostalgic and like rosy tinted you know like and it really valorizes early friendships and like they're not always really worth celebrating and you don't see a lot of stuff that talks about like friendships ending and people growing out of them can you talk about that a little bit right um I think what I wanted to like I mean you know, I've, we've seen those kind of stories. I was more interested in like thinking back to some of my f- f- uh, friendships uh, and 
and going along with what the crowd was doing or the popular sentiment or thinking about kids who were bullied and what my part in that may have been as a teen. Um, so I was more interested in, in that because it just seems a bit, for, for me, it seemed realer, um, realer, that's not a word, but more authentic. Um, and just try to untangle that knot. Plus also the, like I knew the plot would be, he's going to fall in love with this girl who everybody hates and the pressure to <clears throat> conform, fit in, go with the status quo of your friends can be really toxic. Uh, and I don't know, I just, I just naturally wanted to sort of untangle that if I could, um, in a dramatic sense. So. Yeah. Yeah. I think that it's, it's so well handled and it is, especially when you compare to the relationship that he is developing with George, who is this, you know, outsider and she's part of the family that, um, is ostracized by the town that they live in, um, and it really made me think about the way that people like either perform or don't perform in relationships, you know, because he has to pretend to be somebody he's not with his old friends, you know, and now he's yeah. meeting somebody who kind of lets him be okay with who he is, you know. Um, can we talk a little bit about George and kind of where she came sure. from? And because she's so interesting, like she's really deeply uh, complex and obviously is like, traumatized by what she's been through um but she's also like a prickly character you know and she's like really angry and there's a lot of like rage there can you talk a little bit about her sure um the main inspiration for george was actually uh her name is mary cat the narrator from uh we have always lived in the castle by shirley jackson which is one of my favorite books probably the the voice in that is just extraordinary um and mary cat is this strange prickly character who's performing all these weird magic tricks or not magic tricks but she's performing sort of folk magic um and i was so blown away by that book i kind of wanted to some someone emulate that um with george uh but it was also you know given how confining her family is and we don't really see how bad like what's really going on um whether her parents are her parents are abusive but how abusive we don't know or for sure but it just the that coupled with being the ostracized family in town, I met, just imagined a lot of anger. Like you know, teenagers teenagers have a lot of anger in them anyway. Like for whatever, like hormonal or their situations. Added to that, I figured she would be just a a volcano set to go off, um, and wanted to go off on Mark. But at the same time, you know, he becomes the only friend she's ever had. Um, so yeah. Um, I don't know. She was just like a weird character that I kind of really empathized with in a way. Not that I was ever a teenage girl, but I remember um, friends, uh, girls who were friends and their frustrations at sort of their, their own situations at home, sometimes, you know, not great situations, but having, uh, being unable to do anything about it and having nowhere to really vent it, except your friends or the people closest to you. Um, which is unfortunate, but sometimes it is. But when when there's no, when you see there's no way out, so yeah, yeah, she is very isolated, and um, she, you know, her her kind of her struggle with how how much to let Mark see her, you know, is really right. interesting. And it's you know, obviously, he's kind of experiencing the same struggle too of like how much does he let down his barriers and let 
Percy, um, I would love to talk more about the magic because um, one of the most insightful things that I thought uh, was in this book was how there's a point at which Mark uh, watches her uh, doing her rituals and filling witch bottles. Mm -hmm. And he kind of compares it mentally to his own like um, obsessive compulsive behaviors that he developed in the wake of his mother's death. And I just right. thought that that was such a super interesting comparison to make. And, you know, what were you thinking about, you know, the role that ritual plays in our lives, you know, and maybe even the role that it plays in like in horror, you know? Right. Right. Um, I was kind of thinking about, like, I, I've always loved stuff about witchcraft and folk horror. Um, and I don't remember where I heard about witch bottles, but it just seemed like a cool idea. Like these little things you place in your home, that would somehow capture or or stop bad bad energy or evil spirits, whatever, uh, or other things like putting a line of salt down outside your front door to keep the ghosts away. Um, stuff that makes like because it's magic. Uh, there's no science to it, so like putting a jar full of pins and hooks that would literally hook something. Mm. I kind of love that idea. Yeah. Um, and George, I figured, was someone who like, she's already got an interest in this, and she probably reads it, has read a ton about that subject. Um, and again, when I was ready, like thinking back to my own childhood, I used to do weird things that I kind of felt compelled to do. And I saw, I saw um, also happen with my oldest kid. She had, at one point, she had sort of an anxiety issue, and she was like tapping. <laughs> and seeing the um, the correlation between trying to perform a spell of some kind that would uh, emanate your will or or manifest what you want, and the same thing with a weird, almost like a, a tick that you're not conscious of. Um, and in Mark's case, it's, it's you know he recognizes it as exactly the same because he develops this tapping ritual. Um, when his mom's in the hospital so that it, as long as he goes through the rich, the whole ritual of it is what matters to them. To, it, that cements the magic and ensures the outcome until, and he stops it when he realizes it, it did like, it ultimately doesn't because she does die, even though he did everything right. So it's, he kind of gave up the aspect where George is still very much um, into performing fog magic. And like to the point in the book where she's convinced that the reason that she and her sisters were attacked is because the wish bottle she put down had been spoiled. They've kind of run out of their magic or their magical battery sort of thing. So. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. They're like, they're totally both protective, <laughs> protective measures. And like, it occurred to me while you were talking that, you know, oftentimes we talk about like OCD, we talk about like magical thinking, you know, and there is yeah. like a type of a, like both magic and OCD kind of operates by this, like, if I do X, like Y will happen or Y will not happen, you know? And that's a very, very interesting insight, I think. Um, yeah, I am also very curious about like another part of um, that phase of your life, I thought it portrayed very well, which is like how, uh, like when you're a teen, especially, it could be really, um, like powerful to connect through like media and like mm -hmm. books you share and the conversations that you have about like movies that you've seen or ones that like you recommend to people or that they recommend to you. And I was wondering if like some of the texts and the films that you mentioned in it were ones that like you had 
encountered early on and were important to you too. Yeah, for sure. In fact, uh, Mark's interest in books kind of reflects my own. Um, at that age, reading a ton of like fantasy, like sort of Conan the Barbarian, kind of <clears throat> pretty simple, like sword and sword and sorcery stuff. And then moving on to something more interesting, like Elric of Nullaball, which was a, a strange fantasy series about a doomed character that I, I just loved. Um, I think, you know, we all kind of relate to each other in terms of uh, in terms of stories. We're just natural storytelling, story-consuming creatures. Um, and I've, with George and Mark, that's, that's, that's one way that, that they kind of bond and understand each other. You, you can't talk about the thing that's really bothering you because you may not even be able to identify it, but you can talk about a book or a movie you saw that may have addressed the same the same thing um or in one of the there's a scene where the the market his friends are watching the thing which is the classic john carpenter alien movie uh and mark himself is feeling like the alien imposter in the room because uh, that that my favorite scene in in the thing which is that i don't know if you've seen the movie but there's a the interrogation scene where they've got all the guys lined up and Kurt Russell's testing their blood to see who's the actual alien. And it's like, it's a nail biter of a scene, but it's so uh, engrossing. Mm. I don't know. There's, you know, that was, that was the kind of stuff I just lived and breathed at that, at that age. Well, I still kind of do actually want well, I'm trying to kid. But... <laughs> yeah. Like I, um, so first off the thing is like my favorite horror movie ever. It's just like, it's phenomenal. And I loved like revisiting that scene, especially like in the context of you know, this novel, because like, usually when you think about that scene, like you identify with the people who are like, not yeah. the alien. <laughs> and the fear is like, oh, like one of your friends is going to be the alien. And then you're going to have to like, you know, run away or kill him or do whatever. But like, to actually imagine that like, scene from the point of view of like somebody who does feel like the alien or the outsider, and who is like afraid of getting caught out, like that sort of like, imposter syndrome in your own life. Yeah. yeah. Like, especially when you're a teen and you don't know yourself, you know, like you don't know who you are supposed to be. So you're pretending at like some vague idea of, <laughs> of something. Completely. And that was that was one of the things when I was writing the book, like thinking back to my own experience was, uh, you know, the, the term imposter syndrome didn't exist back then. But that's exact kind of exactly what I remember feeling. And I think a lot of people were. The, uh, and the, the weird pressure to fit in and be liked uh was kind of everything like the, the fear of being cast out um and being exiled among your peer group was like the worst thing um and like yeah the, having something to filter that through like you know a great sci-fi horror movie like the thing was kind of uh it just kind of worked and i was lucky to be able to find that that uh transition but. yeah i i really love that moment i would love for you to talk about um you know, the dynamic in in the house where george lives you know because a lot of the sort of horror of her um existence and like the reasons why her family is ostracized or kind of like occluded from us or only hinted right. at you know when we see aspects of it um but not all of it and I was wondering kind of like when you are like writing around something like that, you know, and revealing parts of it as opposed to like all of it, is there, um, is there a fuller, more complex 
image in your head that you are writing around or does it exist for you like in the bits that appear on page? Does that make any sense? No, <laughs> that, that, no, that makes complete sense because uh, in one instance, I would have written out the complete history of that family and figured out all the dynamics so I would know what color the couch is like to that kind of degree. I didn't this time. I kept it like how you said in the, the uh, latter section. I kept it kind of obscure because I I didn't want to, I wanted them to be a mystery to me as well. It's kind of like uh, how a ghost story works. If you suggest the ghost, it's scary. If you if you see the ghost, it's suddenly not so scary. Or if the answers are given to you, it's not as compelling as being left with some kind of mystery. It's like, what is going on? And why are these people acting this way? We get glimpses of what the parent, what the parents are like, the family dynamic. Um, but at its root, it's really just uh, a grieving family that's turned kind of toxic, uh, and doesn't matter which way it, it, how that manifests, it's still the same thing. You've got a, two adults who are not doing well and treating their kids poorly. In this case, they're the parents have become ultra. Um, uh, protective to the point where they're, they're damaging their own kids, but the, of course they don't see it that way. Uh, so at the end of the day, it's, it's just one more abusive family that's kind of left on their own. Nobody's. It's, I I always imagine them as being completely alone. There's no there's no outside family of theirs who's around to help them. They're just kind of trapped in their own little castle, and they um, they pulled up the drawbridge and like want nothing to do with anybody else. Uh, and the the adverse effects that has on three daughters who are living there, uh, plus the fact that one one of the daughters is dead, and they're all they're all individually uh, dealing with that, and or not dealing with it in a way. So mm -hmm. it's one heavy kind of stew. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and it really that like points out, I think, um, the fact that you mentioned that like they are so isolated that they are just in their little world like that is why um mark is so dangerous to the family like from right. the, the living sisters and even other family members like um you know bringing an outsider in like pierces that bubble and it like shows that the reality that you are living in is maybe not the only reality you know and so yeah. like they it's such an interesting tension there between wanting to let somebody in and then also wanting to like you know uh protect the homestead and, and not have your world get disturbed yeah for sure for sure there's also like some of my own uh kind of history bleeding into that um not to get too personal but uh my dad was an alcoholic for years and i remember the like just never bringing anybody home after like after it got to a certain point it was kind of like it's, it was something you kind of hid um it was a shameful thing even though i'm sure half my friends probably were dealing with the same thing but I just remember how isolating that was and never had, never letting somebody come over because I didn't want them to see the actual truth of what my reality was. Um, so I think a lot of that kind of bled through with the, the Pharaoh family uh, and the effect it has on their, on their kids. So That's a, a really interesting, I think, aspect of this because I think that is one of those types of things that families tend to like, talk around you know and oh, not yeah. like and it's things that like families are ashamed of or like individual members can and that really to me like that does even speak to like mark two a little bit and it's ironic and bittersweet in a way you know that like the things that 
make Mark ashamed and make him feel like he's alone in the world and that there's like no one else like him, you know, or actually right. the things that like connect him to like every other human being, and especially to George, you know, like the things that make you feel so vulnerable and isolated and alone are like the things that actually make you human, you know, and a part right. of like human society. And so like they get to connect over these things that they thought like they were the only ones experiencing, which is I think why it's also so powerful for them too. Sure. It's also indicative, like, you know, at that age, you do kind of feel this, this sense that nobody understands me. Uh, or when you fall in love with the first time, you think, my, you know, my God, no one's ever felt this powerfully before. Uh, uh, so, yeah, yeah. Um, the sense of isolation, especially with Mark uh, and his circumstances, having friends that he's suddenly realizing he doesn't quite like, or there's a huge divide between them. Mm-hmm. Um, adding, but in a very sort of toxic masculine way, uh, especially with the, the one friend who's very violent, very aggressive, um, and feeling he doesn't have an, a, a way to, to, he doesn't have anyone to talk to really about his feelings until he meets George because she's exactly on the outside. Um, he's she's safe to talk to you because she doesn't know any of his friends. You know, you know what I mean? Um, in the case of George, it's, it's like a bit different because she has no other friends. It's just her and her family. But yeah, I don't know. It's just how it turned out. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really lovely, like within, you know, a horror story. Like it's a very, right. really, um, very beautiful and moving dynamic I think that they share and it's it's just like it's it's so well done and you know thank you for writing this because I feel like it's like you know it was obviously like extremely uh entertaining and like a good read but also just like made me reflect a lot on like my own childhood and like growing up and you know what you're going through in those years um do you think that like um this kind of mode of horror is something that you'll return to? Like, um, is there anything that you're working on next that you could talk about or like what's in the future for, for you writing wise? Um, I don't know if I'll go back to coming of age as much fun as, as it was to write. I don't know if I want to go back to that thing. Um, I've, I've written, I've got a couple books that I'm trying to shop around now. One is actually a, uh, about the Bride of Frankenstein. So it's kind of a historical gothic horror kind of thing. Um, yeah. Uh, and the other one is a, uh, I don't even know if it's horror. It's like a thriller that's set in Berlin as the, as the city falls to the, to the Russians during World War II. Um, so yeah, I'm kind of all over the place. Um, but there is, there, I, can, I had a blast writing, writing Wasp in the Ice Cream just for the, not the nostalgia thing, but going back and, uh, kind of reliving that. I, I was kind of surprised at some of the stuff I was digging up that I kind of either had forgotten or I wasn't smart enough to kind of process. But looking back on it now, kind of going, "Oh, geez, that was a uh, that was pretty shitty." Whatever that thing was, like, the, the, like there's a part of the book where the where Mark Mark's dad says something off color and kind of nudges him, saying, "You know, like be cool. It's, you know, it's okay to say something." awful but implicating him in it um and it, that was a direct moment like, i can remember older guys in my life or like my dad's friends saying something really wrong but giving the old nudge nudge wink wink be cool and looking back on it now it's kind of like well that's how it's passed on like no one's born with shitty ideas 
here's how how it's learned because somebody who should know better is literally just passing the buck to you and implicating you in it but so yeah i don't know i'm I might go back to coming of age or the eighties because the eighties seem very popular. I don't know. (laughs) Well, I I think those ideas are also interesting and it does what you've just said, I think links back up to like some of the dynamics at work in like the bullying and bullying and ostracization that we see with George, because like, like we were saying before, when you talk about group dynamics and trying to fit in, like it's much easier to, um, signal the outside status of others than it is to like claim your own insider status you know and yeah. those kind of like those incorrect comments that are like okay among the boys but like no one else are like also kind of function that way i think yeah yeah for sure for sure yeah well thank you so much for coming on the show i'm so glad we got to talk and i hope that you know especially for this bride of frankenstein project i hope you'll come back and talk about that because that that sounds like something i would love to so <laughs> I, I would love i would love to uh, thank you so much for having me on the show and for reading the book i really appreciate all the great questions yeah this, this has been great Thank you. And it was my pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Okay, listeners, you can pick up Wasps in the Ice Cream at a, a independent bookstore or library near you as of the day that you hear this episode. I highly suggest that you do. Uh, thank you for listening. And it is now time to close this chapter. It's time to close this chapter of Turn the Page. Join us for the next episode.